Well, this summer we've been digging into the parables of Jesus. And today I had the privilege of wrapping this whole series up with one that focuses on something every human being, please stop, wrestles with on a horizontal, superficial level. But far too many people do not realize there is a much deeper, eternal issue at stake that's behind this longing that every human being has. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. And oh, I hope you have a Bible. We still believe here that it doesn't matter what I say or another man or woman says, what does God say? And we believe the Bible is God's word. So we want you to track with us with God's word. It can change your life. So bring a Bible if you're gonna attend our church because we use them. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning of verse nine. Follow along. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. What is going on in this parable and why does Jesus tell it? Well, here's the first thing I want you to recognize. Number one, Jesus puts his finger on something every human being is trying to achieve. Approval, acceptance, a settled sense that I'm okay, up to par. I meet the standard. Because whenever you see the word righteous or righteousness in the Bible... It's, it's a word that speaks to this issue because the Greek word for righteousness or righteous has the sense of being approved, accepted, passing scrutiny. Here's how this relates to us as human beings. I don't think I need to tell you, if you were honest, how hard it is for us to truly say and mean it. I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. You may say it, but you don't mean it, really. And here's what's going on. Within human nature, the human DNA is hardwired for approval. We desire approval. We long for approval. We want approval. That's what's going on. It might be you or surely you've observed it. That's why you'll see people that it's like for a lifetime, perhaps. You watch them or it's you for a lifetime. Driven 
to try to gain the approval of a father or a mother or a coach or a supervisor or a boss or a coworker or certain friends or social circles. That surely you can relate to if you were honest. But here's what too often people do not recognize. That yearning, that longing, that hunger, that drive is just the tip of the iceberg. It is part of something much deeper that far too many people don't don't recognize. It is really only a symptom of a much deeper unsettledness we all have for approval and validation from our creator, God. And that's the issue that Jesus puts his finger on and begins to tell this parable. And in this parable, he explains that there's only two ways to go about trying to satisfy this hunger to know that I'm approved by God, that I've got his approval, that I'm okay, I'm right. Only two ways to go about satisfying this. And he sets it up just like he does with all parables. If you've been paying attention, and I hope you have because the series is over now. Surely you've been picking up on parables were designed to shock us and shake us out of our conventional thinking. When Jesus recognizes you're not thinking what you should be thinking. Parable time. And he does it here in a big way. He sets it up in a shocking and extreme way by choosing two people in that culture that were polar opposites, radical extremes from each other. A Pharisee and a tax collector. A Pharisee in that day was the poster child for. They're doing everything right. In fact, they do more than is required. They do more than is necessary They are the ones that we look to as the gold standard. And actually we think, oh, if I could just be even remotely a little more like them, then I know I'd be okay. I know I'd feel okay. I know God would accept me, love me. I would be okay. Pharisee. Tax collector. Now I know if you're human and you're a sinner, you don't like paying taxes. Let's admit it, you don't. But they do pay for the roads you drive on, et cetera, et cetera, so. But this is far more than that. In that day, listen to me, a tax collector was the poster child for the most despised, hated, looked down upon person in their culture. Here's why. Because he was seen as a collaborator with the oppressive Roman government. They were living in a day where Rome ruled them. Another nation ruled them. They hated it. And this person is collecting taxes for Rome. He was viewed as a traitor, a gangster, a shakedown artist on the bottom rung of society. How could you do this? Jesus sets it up like this. So now with that in view, let's dig into what would Jesus want us to see and understand about these two very different ways to approach trying to gain God's approval. Here's the first approach, and it is the most common by far. By far, what I'm about to describe right over here is the most common approach. Why? Because it feels so right to us. No one has to teach you, hey, get over here on this path. Check this out. You might want to try to do this. We're born already thinking this way. It feels so right. It makes sense to us. It's logical, and it's this. Most people spend their entire lives working on 
an outside-in approach to some degree, some fashion, for gaining God's approval, for being righteous. Outside-in, I'm working on it. And this is what it looks like. Let's look at some of the characteristics of this approach. The man or woman that's on this path, that is bought into this, what's it look like? Well, here's the first characteristic that I want to point out from the parable. Number one, when you're on this, achieve God's approval. So this path, I would tell you, you could summarize it in one word, achieve. Because it's what I'm doing. I'm trying to do enough of the right things. And when I compare myself to enough other people, I feel pretty good that I'm doing better than them. So surely I'll hit a tipping point where God will say, yes, look at you. You go, girl. It's achieve. Here's the characteristic. Number one, you will be focused on outward behavior. You will be focused on outward behavior far more than internal character and Christ-likeness. Look what the Pharisees focused on in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. What is he doing? Folks, he's stacking the deck with big, bad, outward, obvious sins that are easy to see. And you can say, thank goodness I'm not like that. Thank goodness I haven't done that. Our favorites usually are, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, praise God for that. I can see that. You're not in an orange jumpsuit dragging a little chain. But so what? I haven't ever murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't big, bad, obvious, outward sins. Let me tell you what I sense too, too often, sadly, today has become that. And I hope the church is doing better. I want this church to do better. You know what I've sensed for about a decade is the sin that gets used that way? Homosexuality. Well, I'm so glad I'm, oh, I would never, I don't even, oh, the thought of it. How could, how could, oh. So I haven't done that. So that puts me in a better position. Notice the Pharisee doesn't say, God, I thank you. I think I'm a kinder person. I think I'm more patient. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm more patient. I, I think, oh my goodness, I think I love people. People that I used to not be able to love. Oh my goodness, I'm loving people better. And in trials, I think I actually have a little more joy and contentment and peace than I used to have in difficult circumstances. That my joy isn't being so much tied to circumstances being pleasant. Thank you, God. None of that. Outward, external. Why? Because his concept of sin is all about keeping or breaking obvious outward big sins. Folks, this is still alive today. And some of you, I love you. Oh, how I've prayed this week. I mean, please know I don't have names like it's you. And I hope you're listening. But I've lived with me long enough and I've been a pastor 30 years This is still alive and well today. Oh, I've been praying, God, help, 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 help people to get this. I've got a dear older friend who's been in the church decades longer than me. Decades longer than me. Not in our church, but in church. And here's what this looks like, folks. He's everything you would think of when you think of a good man. They actually still do exist when you think, oh, man, he's a good man. He would not cheat you. He would not lie. He would go the extra mile when he works. You would want to hire him. It's like, man, we need more of him. What happened to him? Good man. 
But here's what he does. I don't ever in our conversation say, tell me why you think you're good. But he brings it up regularly, regularly. He'll say, I've been faithful to my wife for over 50 years now and I have not done the horrible things that so many people have done. I didn't do this the first time he did that, please no. I let it go, let it go, let it go. And he did it one day. I said, do you know that good people go to hell? You would have thought I'd struck him in the face. He was so taken back. And he said, well, then who does go to heaven? I shared the gospel. That we're all sinners. It doesn't matter what you've done or not done, who you are. You're born a sinner. You're destined for hell. You could not earn God's favor. Your sin alone, whatever it is, would land you in hell. You need a savior. He lived the perfect life, took on our sin, paid the price, put your trust in Christ. Gospel. We're eating lunch in a restaurant. He does it again. I didn't say, hey, do that thing again. He just did it again. (laughs) He's like, because when you're on this path, folks, you got to do it regularly for your own assurance because you actually have very little security. You're insecure, so you need to do this. He said, I've been faithful to my wife for over 50 years and have not done the horrible things that so many other people. I said, did you know that good people still go to hell? It's like we never had this conversation. He's like, well, then who does go to heaven? I shared the gospel. Jesus, right? I won't go through it again, but I did as if we'd never done it. The next time it happened, we're sitting at a packed picnic table in my backyard. It was my daughter Kelly's high school graduation party. There's a DJ on the patio, speakers, music is blaring. I think we got Casey and the Sunshine Band doing Shake Your Booty. I mean, it's so loud you have to scream to be heard. And at the picnic table, he yells, Brad said that good people, we weren't even on that subject, good people go to hell. But I can't remember who goes to heaven. Brad, tell us. So I screamed the gospel to Casey and the Sunshine Band. Now, please know, why do I tell you that? It is not to make fun of this man. I love him dearly. I love him dearly. Here's why I tell you this. He's smart. He had a big time job. He, he's, a, he's a smart man. He's not stupid. This achieve God's approval path and approach is so ingrained in us. When someone starts to tell you something else different, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus Nothing. it's like you're speaking a foreign language. They see your mouth moving. They hear words and it does not compute. Did you know it takes the grace of God for you to even understand the grace of God? It's not how we think. So they hear it and still just think, "Mm, mm, no, 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 no. So if you're here and you know the Lord by faith alone and Christ alone plus nothing, on your worst day, whatever else is wrong, you ought to just thank God for saving you. Thank God for saving you. Thank God that the gospel sounded beautiful. It made sense. You knew you needed a savior. Let me tell you what else starts to happen. When you're on this achieve God's approval path, you're really trusting yourself. He hits it head on in verse nine. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. You have to. And here's what happens. 
this becomes a spiritual endeavor with me at the center. And God, you believe in God. God gets relegated to the sidelines in the bleachers as an observer, someone you perform for. But it's all about me and what I'm doing for God to get his attention, to earn his approval. Everything's riding on you, which I would add is why. These people on this path, they're grumpy, they're touchy, they're very sensitive, easily offended, crushed by any criticism, right? And none of us love criticism, like, yeah, that, what else? Bring it. No, none of us like it, but this person is undone by anyone exposing or pointing out any flaws or sins. Why? Because it's all a project of I have to prove how good I am and how much I'm... So they will not admit they're wrong. They blame shift. They manipulate. They cry. They scream. They're some of the most difficult people to live with. Raise your hand if... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But oh my goodness, to be married to this person, to room with this person, to work with this person, to play with this person, to go to church with this person. Difficult. Difficult because if it's all about what I'm doing, then I've got to constantly, even if I have some insecurities, stay confident, stay confident, stay, I can't own up to anything. You're truly trusting in yourself, not God, certainly not Jesus. Third characteristic, watch, this will inevitably happen when you head down this path of achieve God's approval and I got to do enough of the right things to know that I think I'm okay because I'm comparing myself to everybody else, you will start mixing You'll start mixing personal convictions and choices with biblical commands in an effort to pile up everything you can to prove that you're ahead of everybody else. You say, Brad, what are you talking about? You got that from those verses? Yes. Did you notice something he slipped in there? In verse 12, did you notice something? I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, extortioners. The Bible says don't steal, don't extort, clear command. Adulterers, the Bible says don't commit adultery. Tithing, the Bible says tithe. What is slipping there right before tithing? I fast twice a week. Well, good for you. Would it be good to fast? Is there a Bible command that says fast twice a week? No. And he's got it on par with everything else. Why? When your spiritual life consists of an endeavor to do enough of the right things and it's all about I got to stay ahead of everybody else, you will pile it on any way you can to assure yourself that you're doing better and you're going to get approval. You're going to get approval. Never mind the Pharisee. Does this still exist today? Does this go on to any degree today? Oh, listen to me. Yes, it does. It's not usually fasting. I haven't run into that. And it's almost never spoken out loud. But you think it to yourself. It happens right here in social settings and encounters with other people. Here's what it looks like. Well, I eat healthy and organic. Because our, our body's the temple of the Lord. First Corinthians 6, bam. What's wrong with all these other filthy people? Defiling the temple. I listen to only Christian music because I want my mind to be renewed with truth at every opportunity. Christian only. I'm debt-free. I'm working on debt-free. We live with a budget. Bam. I have nothing to do with alcohol. I hardly watch TV and we only do movies that are G or PG. 
I read through the Bible every year. How much of it? No, louder. All of it. Even Leviticus, I don't even start skimming. No. Word for word. Numbers with all those genealogies, those names. Every name. Every name. Hallelujah. Right? I am in a small group. Always have been. Always will be. Huh? We homeschool. We sacrifice financially to put our kids in Christian school. We've adopted children. Wait. We've adopted children from other countries. Wait. We've adopted disabled children from other countries. Now again, I've made some of you really mad. So don't stop listening because here's what I want to say. You could do any or all of the things on that list for some very good God-glorifying reasons. Don't hear me saying don't adopt. Don't hear me saying don't homeschool. Don't hear me saying don't on any of that. You may choose that. Do hear me saying this. It does not earn you any additional merit in God's sight and does not put you ahead of or one leg up any other brother or sister in Christ that chooses differently. That's the deal. And we so easily gravitate back over here. Choose it. Live it to the glory of God. But don't despise others who choose differently and don't think it adds any merit or makes you more righteous or puts you ahead. And this is related. Look what happens next. Another characteristic. When you head down this path of earn, achieve God's approval, you will be far more inclined to pull away from other people you think aren't doing as well as you are in keeping your particular list. Whatever it is. Look at how Jesus describes the Pharisee in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. The ESV really gets it right. Standing by himself. He stood away from everyone and so will you if your approach to righteousness is achieving God's approval and what I'm doing because you can't risk even being seen with other people that aren't doing the same. God just might confuse the two of you. And you need to hang out with people who are doing exactly what you're doing because it bolsters your shaky confidence in thinking this is the way to do it. This, look at all these people. This is what we do and it's right. It's right, it's right, it's right. And that leads to the next thing that starts to happen. You'll pull away and your strongest emotion very often towards other people around you will be contempt rather than compassion. Look at the end of verse nine. He spoke this parable to those who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Look at me. And there's something else that goes with that every time, all the time. It's not optional. If you head down the path of I'm actually trusting in myself and what I'm doing, this goes with it. Say the three words at the end of verse nine. And despised others. You will. You'll despise others. You won't have a lot of compassion. That won't be your default setting. You will look down on everybody else. You will scorn others. You'll treat others with contempt who aren't doing all that you're doing. In other words, this path, folks, wrecks your, your vertical relationship with God, but it wreaks havoc on your horizontal relationships with other people around you. Oh, you say, why, Brad? Because the person on this path... If it's a spiritual endeavor and they're in the driver's seat and it's all about them, guess what they're not getting? 
grace. To get grace from God, you have to be what? God resists the, but gives grace to the, are these humble people? That was weak. And therefore they get no grace. Therefore they have no grace to extend to others. Their standard of expectations for spouse, friends, church is so high. And they're, they're easily offended. This is that person that's been offended by so many people. No grace. They extend no grace because they're getting no grace. Then finally, look at something else that I would not want to happen. It fouls up your prayer life. Oh, just throws a wrench into the spokes of the wheel of prayer. When you head down this path of achieve God's approval, oh, your prayer life will degenerate into nothing more than a platform for boasting about yourself instead of praising God and confessing your own sin. Because if God's relegated to the bleachers on the sidelines as an observer that you perform for, then your prayer life needs to consist largely, every time I get a chance to talk to him, I've got to point out to him things I'm doing. I hope, he, I hope you didn't miss that. Did you see that? It's about you. Look at his prayer. I'm not making this up. Look at his prayer in verse 11. God, I thank you. Problem so far? No, it's a great start. He got out of the blocks, Good. It's horrible after that. It's one of the most confusing thank you prayers you could ever hear. God, I, when you write somebody or email somebody, thank you. What should happen next is you start saying things about them you appreciate and what they did you appreciate. He starts with God, I thank you, and God isn't mentioned again. It's all about him after that. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Ding, 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 ding. Listen to me. Oh, how I've prayed this week and been burdened this week. Don't, don't push this away so quickly and easily and think, oh yeah, those Pharisees. There are people in this room, in this church, on this path. Because it's so ingrained in our human nature. It's like a foreign language until God gives you grace. Do you see yourself anywhere on this path of achieve God's approval? Could it explain why you've been so frustrated for so much of your so-called Christian life? And could it explain why you continue to feel so insecure and have so little joy and peace and rest and so hard to love other people or show compassion? If you're on this path, those things often will be in place. But praise God, there's another path. There's another path and I want you to hear it. There's a second approach. You can humble yourself and recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. I got nothing. So that you can receive an inside out approach to righteousness before God. And this approach could be characterized. So over here, if you wanted to walk away with one word, achieve. Over here, this could be summarized as believe and receive. Believe and receive. Let me show you what it looks like. Look at some of the characteristics of this approach. First thing, you will stop comparing yourself to anybody else but God. And you'll own, you'll own up to your own sin. Look at the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, if you're saying, Brad, my translation doesn't say the sinner. 
Well, it only does if you have the New American Standard. Which my wife, when I get home, always says, bam, got it. It says that. It's the only translation that says it because every other, the New American Standard for what it's worth is the most literal and wooden translation we have in English. But every other translation team thought it sounded odd and confusing. So they said, be merciful to me, a sinner. But folks, in the original language, it's the definite article in the Greek that means the sinner. Why? It's worth hanging on to because in that moment, he didn't want to say, oh, I'm a sinner. So are a lot of other people. A lot of people are like this. In his mind, in that moment, there's nobody else that matters. It's me, my sin, and a holy God. He's not looking for any other comparison point in the room like this guy was or like this tax collector. His head is down and he's before a holy God with a sense of me. I know that I'm lost. Doesn't matter where anybody else is right now. I'm lost. Be merciful to me. I don't think it means he thought he's the worst sinner in the world. That's done worse things than anybody else. But it's when you humble yourself, you see yourself as the only sinner at this moment before a holy God. And folks, that's the beginning of moving towards new birth. You're not comparing yourself to anybody else. Be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner. Look what else happens on this path. You, secondly, will beg God. You'll beg God to take care of your sin problem in a way that you know you could never do on your own. And, and, and it comes out more strongly in the original language than what we see in English. When he says, God, be merciful to me. There is a perfectly good word in the Greek for mercy that's used hundreds of times. Elias. He doesn't use that word. He uses another word, hilasterion, that's only used two times. And it literally means atone for my sin. He has an awareness. I need somebody else to cover my sin. I need somebody else to pay the price, to give a sacrifice. In other words, I need a savior. I could never wipe away my sin. I can, he's not asking God, God, give me a break. God, look the other way. God, lower your standard. He sees himself as the sinner. He sees God as holy. And he he knows there's no hope unless that same holy God provides for him what he can never do for himself. Atone for my sin. It gets used the second time in Hebrews 2.17, talking about Jesus, where it says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. He took on flesh. That he might be a merciful, that's the normal mercy word, Elias, and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word that the translators chose to translate propitiation is the word helisterion. Propitiation means wipe out my sin, push back the wrath of God, and place me in a place of favor. He's saying, I need you to do that. I can never do that. I can't do it. It's not an achieve. It's not me at the center of the spiritual endeavor. I'm the sinner. You're a holy God. I need a savior. I need someone to wipe out my sin and put me in a position of favor. Which leads to the third characteristic I want you to see. Oh, when, you're, when you see yourself as the sinner and you know you need a sacrifice, atonement, then you start looking away from yourselves. This is the third characteristic. Your spiritual life will be characterized by looking away from yourself. This guy over here, this woman over here, they look at themselves on a regular basis and they look at others. Over here, you look away from yourself 
You look away from yourself to your Savior, Jesus Christ, again and again and again. You don't start there. You start there and stay there. That's why Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto, say it, Jesus, the author, he starts it and what? Finisher. Oh, listen, Jesus doesn't save you and then the rest of your Christian life is your own effort to live it out. Oh, how miserable that would be. Author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He took your shame. You don't have to cover up anymore. And listen to this, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down because it's finished. You can be done because he's done. Salvation is a finished. You look to Christ and what he has finished. That's why he said on the cross, it is, say it. What was finished? That atonement, that payment. It's all in Christ. It's never going to be done again. He's your only hope. He's your only one. Look into Christ. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not an outside in behavior way into this. It's Christ comes into your life and it's inside out, the righteousness of Christ. But this is foreign to our DNA hardwiring. 20 years ago when we moved here to Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati, both of us grew up in the deep South My sweet wife, who has the gift of mercy, was so burdened. I was burdened too, but she was so burdened. As we began to make friends and encounter our neighbors and our community and have spiritual conversations, we had never encountered in our whole life as much of, well, you can't know if you're going to heaven. You really can't know. You can't ever really know. Well, you can't know. You can't know. You can't know. It's like, what? What in the world? And... References to baptism, either as a baby or later and catechism and doing enough good. And I hope my good outweighs my bad. And I try to keep the Ten Commandments. and I try to treat people the way I'd want to be treated. And what is going on? And she was so burdened. We'd have probably only been here a couple months. One day in the Kroger parking lot in Fort Mitchell, she saw a priest, an older priest. And she went over to him and said, can I ask you a question? He was in his 80s. He said, sure. She said, what would I need to do to go to heaven when I die? And he smiled and he said, well, one can never truly know for sure. But keep the sacraments, try to keep the Ten Commandments, and be kind to other people. And then his voice just trailed off awkwardly like he had nothing else to say. And Vicky said, but what about Jesus? Where does he fit into all this? And he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. It's only possible because of Jesus. But folks, he didn't mention Jesus until she brought it up. Now, I don't know where that man is. Please know, I don't see his heart. I want this to be about you. When someone asks you if you know whether you're going to heaven when you die, What comes out of your mouth? 
is Jesus anywhere in it? Way up front, early on, big time, spotlight. Almost nothing else being said but Jesus. Because here's what I believe. What comes out of your mouth first and most is what you're really trusting in. If someone has to remind you of Jesus and then you say, oh, yes, 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 of course, Jesus died on the cross. and I would say to you, ooh, it's possible that you are over here on achieve God's approval approach. But let me point something out that I don't want you to miss. Don't miss the stomach punch of this whole parable. Remember I said every parable has a stomach punch, shock, shake, set it up, and then boom. The stomach punch where the air went out of the crowd. I'm convinced if you'd been there, you would have heard people say, oh, is verse 14. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, which man? Tax collector, publican. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Oh, listen to me. If you grew up in the church, we always think, ugh, the Pharisees. That's not how they thought in that day. They had been tracking along thinking, yes, 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 ties all he possesses, fast twice a week, has not committed adultery, does not extort, is not unjust. Yes, this whole story is going to confirm what I already think. Be like this. Boom. This man went down to his house justified rather than, and he uses one of the most glorious words in all the Bible. It's the crown jewel of salvation, justified or justification. Paul uses it 39 times in the New Testament, mostly in the book of Romans. We should teach through that sometime. (laughs) Man, that's a good book. And justified, justification means, folks, if you grew up in the church, you might have heard, oh, here's a catchy way to remember the word justification. Just Just as if I'd never sinned. Please flush that forevermore. Because that doesn't capture it. You did sin. That's what makes justification so glorious. It's not just as if you'd never sinned. You did. And he sent his son for you anyway. And you were an enemy. And justification means he wipes out the record of your sin. It's a courtroom term. A legal term. An accounting term. Your record is cleared. And it's better than that. And the perfect righteousness and obedience and beauty and wonder of all of who Jesus is as the only perfect man, God, man, is applied to your account as if everything he was and everything he did, you did. Oh, my goodness. This man who had not changed any behavior yet, right? Has he headed out of there and started doing better things? No, no. right in that moment, I'm the sinner. Atone for my sin. Went home. Record cleared. Righteousness applied. And then that glorious word is followed by four shocking, sobering words. This man went home to his house justified rather than the other. And that's too weak in the English, in the, in the original language, it is, and not the other. And not the other. It's not this, folks. If you're on this path, get off. 
Don't try to tweak it. Don't try to adjust it. Abandon it altogether. Not this. I know it seems right. It feels right. You think it's right. A lot of people are doing it. Not this. Abandon the achieve God's approval approach and flee to Christ. Is your only hope. And so as we move towards a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, oh, I want to press you a little more. Two different groups that are sitting here today that I want to talk to. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you know it, you would admit it, and I love you, I'm so glad you're here. But if you're not a Christian because you have always thought being a Christian is about me trying to renovate myself and do enough of the right things and change my behavior and get my act together and keep a list and follow all these rules and it's, it just seems exhausting. And oh, by the way, as I've gotten around people in my neighborhood or at the gym or where I work who go to church and say they're Christians, eh, so many of these characteristics I just described is what you've seen. Arrogant, despise others, so prideful, pull away. I don't want any of that. It's been so unattractive. Listen to me, push all that off the table. I am so sorry, the church and some Christians, because here's what you need to understand. There's a whole lot of people running around saying they're Christian that aren't. That's what explains some of all this behavior and lack of fruit of the spirit. I want you to look at Jesus. Come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. But there's a second group I want to address. Maybe you're here and you'd say, all right, I do think I'm saved. I really do think I understand. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. But you still too often get sucked back into a guilt-filled sense of, I've got to achieve and prove I'm a Christian by doing enough of the Christian things to keep God's love and to earn God's love. And, and some days he loves me and some days he doesn't because I didn't read my Bible. And, and here's what happens. You have very little joy, peace, security, freedom. Here's my exhortation to you. Over here, I would say, flee to Christ. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. For you, I would say, rest in Christ. The entire book of Hebrews says he's our Sabbath rest. When you truly come to Christ, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner make atonement. You can rest, it's done. You don't have to perform for God to keep his love and earn his love. He loves you no less and no more on any different day because his love for you is based on Jesus Christ who never changes. Rest in Christ. What do you have today? Never mind the tax collector and the Pharisee. What about you? Where are you today? What path are you on? Are you still trying to achieve God's approval? Or have you believed and received a righteousness that's from the inside out now? Not based on anything you've done, anything you deserve but your willingness to humble yourself and cry out to mer for mercy. Oh God, be merciful to me. What? The sinner.